Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. Today, Deanna and I are joined by Christina Gita, an immigration lawyer who practices at Green and Spiegel in Toronto. Christina is one of the authors of the book Temporary Entry into the Canadian Labour Market by Iman Publishing. The topic of today's episode is when you can work without a work permit in Canada. We discuss what a work permit is, when it is needed, and exemptions from work permits. Some of these exemptions include business visitors, the global skills strategy, religious workers, public speakers, maintained status, people working for or people waiting for postgraduate work permits, and more. Uh, if you want to contact Gita, you can email her at Christina G at gns.com, so C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-G at G-A-N-D-S dot C-O-M. If you would like to contact me, you can email me at S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M, and Deanna can be reached at D-E-A-N-N-A at M-C-C-R-E-A-L-A-W dot C-A. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. What I have before me, given to me by Iman Publishing, is the book Temporary Entry into the Canadian Labour Market which, Christina, you are a part editor of, along with Stephen Green, Alexandra Cole, and Peter Salerno. And Mm -hmm. what we are discussing today is when you can work in Canada without a work permit. Um, I think all of us have active work permit practices, as well as other areas of immigration law. And the, you know, I mean, the starting point is why and when do you need a work permit? What are the consequences if you're working without a work permit? And when can you actually work without a work permit? So why you're being we... a bit generous to say that I have an active work permit practice, but I'll, I'll, I'll take the I'll caregivers take work. <laughs> yeah, they could, they work. Yeah. yeah. I usually am <laughs> dealing with permits. them when they're being told that uh, they are not allowed to do that anymore, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll take your point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why don't we dive in with mm-hmm. what the, definition of work is under immigration law so i mean the the definition under um the regulations is essentially if you're earning wages or commission for the activities that you're um taking part in while in canada and in essence is what you're doing directly um competing with what a canadian or permanent resident could do Um, that's the literal Um, definition of it. But what I typically explain to my clients is um, what are the activities that you're doing in Canada um, and are you being paid for those activities? So if you're entering the Canadian labor market um, and essentially they're looking at you and they're looking at a Canadian or permanent resident saying, can these two individuals or these two groups of people be doing the same thing, then that's work. That's the, the easiest way I usually explain it to my clients. It's always their immediate ask is, well, mm-hmm. they look to kind of get around the role of remuneration. Yeah. <laughs> can't I 
can't I be paid a stipend? Can't I be paid in another country? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what if they just defer paying me for a period of time and then I get a bonus later? Um, and mm-hmm. so how do you respond to those sorts of situations? It's again, it's about your activities. So if it competes directly with the activities of a Canadian or a permanent resident. So if you're working and the the typical example I have is the CEO saying they're coming in to do, let's say, business meetings, right? So I say to them, if you're doing a business meeting and you guys are just talking the quarterlies, that's one thing. But if you're doing your activities that you would typically do as a CEO, so overseeing, you know, the operation, providing you know, recommendations, meeting with your managers, your day-to-day activities, that's work. Um, and that, that requires a work permit. So that's usually the, the easiest way. Money aside, um, it's always about the activities. And that seems to be what clients understand the most because we all know, you know, remuneration and, and all of that. There's different ways, of, as you've identified, of doing it, but it's really what, what they're actually doing while they're in Canada is, is the, really the crux of the test. Um, and that, I mean, we discussed in the last podcast episode with Marina on myths in Canadian immigration, and that was one of the myths she identified, that volunteer work is still work under uh, Canadian immigration legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as those activities that compete directly with, the IRCC website as a whole web page that tries to break down when is it an app, an activity that competes directly with Canadians? When isn't it? And so I'm sure we've dealt with um, like all of these or some of these. The big ones and another one that comes up a lot are internships or people ask, mm-hmm. well, if it's work that's just done for obtaining work experience, is that work? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Foreigners coming to repair machines or fulfill contracts, even if they're paid abroad is that work yes and then there's this list of activities that IRCC does not consider to be work Um, and I'll just go through some of them I mean the big one is an activity which does not really take away from opportunities for Canadians or permanent residents to gain employment or experience in the workplace so it gives some examples of that and one that I'm curious to know how you've relied on it is that you do not need a work permit because it's not considered work if you're doing long distance by telephone or internet work done by a temporary resident whose employer is outside Canada and who is remunerated from outside Canada. So Mm -hmm. how often do you come across or what are the scenarios where you see that apply? Well, I mean, in COVID work from home, era that we've all just kind of, we're still working through, that question came up all the time, Um, especially as the borders closed and family members or, you know, couples that were on either side of the border didn't have the ease of travel. One of them would go to the other side and typically to Canada and work for their, let's say, U.S. employer remotely. Um, And my answer to that has always been, if anything you're doing is for anyone outside of Canada, I'm okay with that. But if a client ends up being a client in Canada, or you start getting, um, you know, a Canadian involved in, let's say, a contract or something like that, that's when the line gets a little bit um, gray. Mm-hmm. 
So that's, that was a big thing, especially for self-employment because online it always talks about self-employment. So I always have freelancers that say, well, I'm not working. All my clients are outside of Canada. And I say, okay, that's fine. Um, I, but I said, do you work with anyone in Canada? And then by asking those questions, it came out that one of the people that she was freelancing for, um, there was a connection in Canada. And at that point I said, that's work. <laughs> it's going to get great. If someone asks you a question, you're going to have issues. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, um, you know, I'm okay with remote work as long as there's a very clear line that it's not entering um, the Canadian labor market. It's not involving a Canadian customer or client, etc. It gets super tricky when there's like e-commerce type, mm-hmm. um, you know, because sometimes people, you know, I've had, um, often this comes up in the context of a spousal where, you know, somebody will be traveling to visit their Canadian spouse. And I I just remember one case where the spouse was like, uh, she ran a consulting business and all of her clients, like it was done a lot of it remotely and all of her business was attracted through her website. Um, But um, just putting in clearer things on the website where it was like, I cannot accept any business from any Canadian clients to make sure that she wasn't going to be offside those um, mm-hmm. work authorization rules because, you know, if a Canadian client came in, then that could really put her offside. Absolutely. And it's about asking those questions, right? When that, mm-hmm. when that question comes to me, my automatic response is asking a series of other questions. Well, and I have probably, so the uh, example that I have that I sent to the IMREP's email address is if you have a YouTube channel that's monetized or a Mm -hmm. podcast with Patreon, um, if that counts as working, if you're, yeah, like that was basically if you set up, if you have a YouTube account and you upload videos in Canada, are you working and uh, what do you think Imrep said? I, mean, I would think they said yes. I, in my opinion, it's, it's work. Yeah, I would say that. Would they say yeah. that? Yeah. They took, yeah, they took the opinion that because there might be Canadians clicking and watching, you mm-hmm. have Canadian clients. I think it's... Um, I think it's sketchy, but at the same time, <laughs> I think if you're looking out for your client's best interest, I would be yeah. worried about them coming in and putting themselves at them I mean ultimately it's about putting themselves at the mercy of a decision maker at the port of entry yeah um and even if somebody at MREPS is like yep sounds good to me um I wouldn't want to have to represent them at an admissibility hearing if somebody takes a different position because they're not Mm -hmm. bound by that previous opinion you know exactly it does stretch in my like opinion the definition of work to its extreme because what are we really like in that example protecting the canadian labor market from what Um, yeah well so much of this i mean that's what i find with all of this conversation about work and the constraints of the work permit we get pretty quickly into um, stretching the bounds of of what can properly be regulated like even just in terms of location of employment and name of employer like they seem pretty obvious and pretty um you know, pretty confined on their face, but especially now with people working remotely, like you'll say the location of work. Well, does that mean if you go on a business trip and you're traveling to a different 
province, you know, for a business meeting, does that mean you're working offside the conditions of your permit? You know, um, uh, if you've got an LMIA and it's registered to a particular location and all of a sudden you start remote working, does that mean that you're breaching the conditions of your work permit? So a lot of these things, you know, um, there's a very logical kind of set of rules in terms of what the requirements are, what the conditions are on your on the face of your permit. And I think that there's also, I think that that things just in the regular marketplace are becoming a little bit more nuanced than a work mm-hmm. than the, the regulation, like than the work permit on its face can contain these days. Yeah. Absolutely. Because or, I mean the work permit, sorry to interrupt Stephen. I mean the work permit is, I think, the definition of work, I think, at the time this was considered. We didn't have all of, as you said before, these nuances, this remote work, this, you know, YouTubers or influencers, you know, those things weren't considered. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm sure someone will have litigation at some point that's going to give us a bit more clarity on these issues for sure. For sure. And I mean, all of this, like the remote work is really just a sentence on the IRCC Mm -hmm. website Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. could be edited at any point. Absolutely. Yeah. The other example they give of uh, what is not work is unremunerated help by a friend or family member during a visit, (laughs) such as a mother assisting a daughter with childcare or an uncle helping his nephew build his own cottage. Is this where you used to have litigation, Deanna, in terms of- It is. It's also where I was cross-examined when I was getting qualified (laughs) as an expert. (laughs) Because we were, I mean, essentially, I, I will explain it a little bit. We were talking about- you know, um, some of, I mean, we were talking specifically about a lot of non-compliances, like, you know, when you look at the criminal sections of the act, um, there's not, it's not very clear, like when a non-compliance is just a non-compliance and when any violation of the act is considered potentially criminal. So that was basically the subject matter of the Mm -hmm. litigation. And so, um, essentially, the, the subject matter of the testimony was that there are lots of very easy ways that somebody can fall into a non-compliance, not through, you know, committing some act of terrorism, but through doing something like helping out a friend or family member when they're in town, you know. And the point being made was, well, look, the website says that that would not be considered unauthorized work. But of course, this is just on a website. It's just policy. It's not enforceable. It's not actually part of the regulations that that is not actually considered unauthorized work. And so this anyways ended up leading to a lot of questioning because, um, you know, so while the website says, you know, if you come and you do the dishes at your friend's house that that's not considered to be unauthorized work but at the same time when you look at the strict definition of what work is like why would it not be and if somebody decided to take you to task and say you worked without authorization how would you actually defend yourself in admissibility hearing and so one more thing on this is that I did have one one of my sort of like landmark kind of crazy cases was when I was at a port of entry with a client who was trying to get a work permit and she helped her prospective employer to the bathroom in a wheelchair and helped him push his wheelchair. And they then called her out and said, you just worked without authorization. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. And so that was like um, the case that I keep saying, like, you know, don't tell me that it's not possible because we <laughs> like I fought, you know, it, 
like at the board, I did a JR, like mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because of that act of helping this person in a wheelchair get to the bathroom um, at a port of entry. So <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of gray area in what the did the board say? So um, it was a very, very long time ago, but basically what, because at the board, it was just a question of whether or not there was unauthorized, unauthorized work. There was no, there was no um, ability to make any equitable arguments at the board. And essentially what ended up happening is that we ended up, because she was still within time to do restoration. So we ended up getting her restored before the matter ever had to get dealt with at the immigration Mm. division. So it became a moot point. But still it was, um, but the board kind of, um, they basically gave us time to get a decision made on the restoration argument because you could sort of tell that they didn't really want to have to deal with this as being (laughs) a question of whether or not that was unauthorized work. So they just kind of, um, they they, they adjourned the the admissibility hearing. Um, Interesting. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, it was quite... And I think we've all seen like cases where there were allegations of unauthorized work that were either founded or not. So one of our former articling students once had to do an immigration division case where someone was accused of working without authorization because they were wearing their spouse's company shirt um, around town, but weren't actually working or it wasn't established that they were working. So there's those evidentiary cases, but to hear like the case you're describing where there was an observation of someone pushing someone in a wheelchair, their prospective employer, I guess, and what, and yeah, technically that I guess would be providing care, uh, but it seems way outside the scope of the intention of the law. Mm-hmm. But that goes to show when clients ask, you know, well, will anybody find out or is anyone really going to care? These are the cautionary tales, right? These are the things mm-hmm. as examples to say, the choice is yours, but I kind of have to come to you and say, this is what potentially could happen. You know, I advise against it, but no, these are the risks. So these are the, 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 the examples we often use. So we've talked mm-hmm. about these risks. What are the actual risks? Like what are the consequences of working without authorization? Well, I mean, for the applicant, for the person that's alleged to have worked without authorization, I mean, they're going to be found non-compliant, inadmissible. Um, if they're coming in, I mean, the, the case that Deanna was talking about, I mean, then you have the whole, you know, removal order, exclusion order. And there's been tons of those cases recently now with the flag polling. Um, and I, I think we're all aware of them where they're coming in and say they came in as visitors and then flag pulled and said your intention <laughs> was different. Um, you actually, you wanted to come in to work instead of coming in as a visitor. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're all dealing with with those cases in one way or another. So, I mean, it's exclusion um, from Canada, non-compliance and admissibility ultimately. And then depending on the level of non-compliance, the employer can also, I mean, have, there's also um, consequences under IRPA for the employer that has um, employed the person without authorization. So those are discussions. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Christina. I'd love to dig into those because they're both very interesting points. Like in terms of the, the, because we've talked about both of these subjects on the podcast and the one about the the misrep allegation mm-hmm. for those who've gone back to the port of entry. Are you finding that those are, are getting legs, any of those misrep claims? Because we've, um, anyways, just I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
Um, the ones that I've, um, I've been involved in, they haven't moved forward. Um, okay. As in one capacity or another, we've reached out or um, things have just kind of, as in your case, um, you talked about like an, a restoration application or, or whatnot. In one way or another, they've resolved themselves. Um, but yeah. I do know there are a bunch of cases that have um, moved forward. I think there was actually a recent case um, that was decided. I haven't had the opportunity to review it yet, um, but I think there was a decision that came down, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. But it, it was happening quite often. Like we were having meeting clients all the time with the same issue. Yeah, we saw a rush of those as well. And um, the ones that I saw, the ones that I, well, the one that I dealt with, uh, they didn't end up um, getting their misrep. Uh, finding uh, they, they, they didn't manage to secure the the misrep allegation at the board which was good mm. um, but I'm just wondering whether or not uh, that's not the case um, that that others are finding that the misrep allegation is sticking um, and so and in that case it was um, kind of prejudicial in the sense that there was already an LMIA at the time of the person's entering as a visitor but um, mm -hmm. you know and so we've talked about this kind of as a cautionary tale to others is that mm -hmm. like not to be coming in as a visitor with the ultimate intention of making a work permit application or you know at the very least of, of being clear um, on entry as a visitor that there is a exactly. future intention to apply as a worker that's something that we talked about previously but um, I would be very interested um, and maybe, you know, in, um, you know, to hear from others who have, have had negative decisions coming down where the misrep allegation has stuck, I think, you know, Steve and I would both be interested in hearing whether or not that, that has occurred. Um, but going on to the second part of it about, um, maybe you can remind me what the second part of it was, because you said, um, does anybody remember what the second piece of it? You said the part about the misrep one, and then you said the part about um, just a bit. No, no. I mean the the consequences to the applicant and then oh, to the, to the employer. employer. The, yeah. the consequences yeah. to the employer. So this was one too that I just wanted to put out a general ask. Like, how many? Like, have either of you seen a lot of cases where the consequences came down on the employer for employing the worker without authorization? I've seen um, warnings. So I've seen, you know, uh, CBSA enforcement, um, you know, going to these places of employment and, and you know, having a discussion with the employer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and talking to them and, and kind of, I guess, giving them pointers and letting them know what their obligations are. But I've not personally seen an employer actually um, prosecuted. I don't know. What we about you, about prosecutions. Um, way back when I first started, there was a pizza chain downtown that I think got fined 70 70,000, some number that I think had a seven in it, 717 mm -hmm. or 70,000 for uh, employing foreign nationals without authorization. I think also last year, I don't remember if it was working without authorization or just in the wrong occupation, but do you remember the, there were a bunch of jockeys in Vancouver? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I do remember and that. that uh, it was at the race TV track, show. right? Yeah. And the border yeah, yeah. TV show, there was a raid on a uh, construction oh. site <laughs> that was filmed. Um, so yeah. it, it, it does tend to happen. And then I've seen... Um, in employer compliance inspections, if somebody is not doing the duties that they're supposed to be doing, yeah. 
So we uh, met with one company where they actually did get an administrative monetary penalty for somebody who was employed as a administrative assistant and they wanted to learn a little bit about the mechanic trade. So I think they were working like five hours a week just getting trained in that and mm. the employer wrote it and was being honest in their um, inspection response and they got hit with a fine for it. The reason I ask this is because employers often say to me, because, okay, wait, uh, it's a two-pronged thing because I often, like when people come to me and they say, hey, I've been working without authorization, I always strongly urge the applicant to make an honest disclosure and request restoration of status. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the immediate reaction is, wait, 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 um, what are the consequences going to be to me? Um, and I, I feel very strongly that like making an honest disclosure and paying the restoration fee, I have not seen. And I think that the, the wording of the legislation makes very clear that if you've made the disclosure, you've paid the restoration fee, that you're that you're secure in knowing that your status will be restored because it's got like the mandatory language, the restoration shall be granted. And so I'm very confident about that. But then, of course, uh, I get the kind of questioning about, well, what about the consequences to the employer? But I just, you know, I think that what we're describing is some, except for the example that you gave, Steve, about the, you know, training outside of the occupation, but the other ones where they're like systemic issues where like repeatedly they're, they're employing people without authorization. I haven't found that there have been consequences to employers um, you know, I find that most of the time, the most severe consequences befalls the, the worker themselves and mostly yeah. when they have not made a disclosure, but they've been caught red handed kind of. Um, and that, you know, that's when I really think um, that's why, you know, to me, it's a it's a no brainer that you go with a disclosure and a restoration rather than risk the misrepresentation being caught. And then I feel like they go kind of full gangbusters after the person and, and, and go, go after them and removal proceedings. So I don't know if yeah, you guys have I any. I think historically alternate. that's been the case. I don't know if in the future as the inspection regime is only what, five, six years old, and it seems mm. to be growing. Um, and there seems to be more resources dedicated to it. So that might change. It definitely seems to be the case that employee complaints um, can lead to inspections. So if mm -hmm. an employee, for whatever reason, were to complain about an employer letting them work without authorization, and where I have seen that is where the employer decides not to pay the employee and they say, well, we can't actually employ you. You don't have a work permit. Whoopsies, it'll have to have been volunteer, which obviously is not the way the system is set up. Um, and that leads to issues there. And then also with, I don't know if Ontario has something similar, but in British Columbia now as a licensing regime for employers that use the um, labor market impact assessment process. And so in theory, if an employer is caught having employed people without authorization, they could lose their license. Um, that's also very new. Like I think that regime only came in in December, 2020. And I don't even know wow. if they've done any inspections yet or anything, um, but in theory, uh, there could be more consequences to employers. It seems a little bit like dis disconnected that yeah. um, on the one hand, I, I, I mean, I would say just in general, the whole notion of the restoration is a little bit 
um, hard to get your head around. Um, and this is something that um, Mr. Justice von Finkenstein spoke about in a case that I argued many, many years ago, where like the whole, and he had some very good word wording in this, where it's sort of like the whole notion of restoration is pretty bizarre in the sense that like, if you read the manual, it says like, you have violated the law. However, <laughs> you know, you can just pay this money and restore your status and all is right, you know? And so um, it's a very strange kind of a, a situation, but also that it's kind of trying to elicit, um, well, it, it, it's set up that it, it can elicit a confession of unauthorized work, but if it's set up so that it would then penalize the employer for having done something, um, again, it just sort of feels like the departments are working at cross purposes in a way. And maybe that's not cross purposes, maybe that's just what they wanna do. But, um, you know, I've found, especially when you're talking about, you know, caregivers and employers, like there does, it does set up a very negative dynamic where an employer will be like, hey, I don't want you to disclose this because I'm afraid of mm -hmm. the consequences to me. And then the caregiver will not disclose it. And then they might get caught or, you know, like, um, you know, it's just, um, it's unfortunate that there isn't a more kind of like, you know, even in the in the context of like EI benefits, if you accidentally receive EI benefits and then you're saying, hey, uh, or if you haven't paid, you know, that there, there are sort of things built in where making that admission will mitigate your liability in some way. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's um, and, and I, I guess there is something like that set up in the compliance regime, but it's not quite as formalized. Is there not something set up where like, if you've come to them and admitted that you have made some violation yeah. that it's supposed to be, you're, treat, you're supposed to be treated a bit more? Yeah, I mean, you won't get as many points when they're telling of the, the score to use <laughs> against right. you. So, I mean, and, and, and it's funny because as we're talking about this between the employee or the worker and the employer, that's usually when the issues of non-compliance start coming up because there's some agreement that was done between them. Um, and then the relationship in some way or another, you know, deteriorates, something happens, and then, you know, both of them are like, well, what are the consequences to me? So, I mean, as, as representatives, I think, you know, anytime we're starting off that relationship, doing work permits, advising, there has to be a clear discussion about, you know, this is you as a worker, what you have to do. This is you as an employer, what you have to do and your ongoing obligations. Because I think that clears things up because everyone, they get caught up in actually getting the work permit, but not understanding what everybody's obligations are. So that's that's an important thing to, to keep in mind for and all representatives, I think. Yeah. yeah, agreed. So let's switch gears into the types of work that you are explicitly authorized to do without a work permit. Um, and these are set out in section 186 of the regulations and as well as 187 to a degree. And why don't we start uh, both, you know, your book, uh, Christina, as well as the IRCC website has just lists with 186 has sections A through X, and we're not gonna do all 24, 20, I can't remember how many letters that would get there's, us to. Yeah, there's quite a few. <laughs> um, but why don't we start with uh, 186A, which is probably the main one, the business visitors. Yeah. Um, how do you summarize, like if a client asks, what is a business visitor? 
Well, business visitor, when they ask me, and again, I'll use the example of the CEO um, of a company. If you're coming in to do a business visit, you're just coming in to do a simple meeting. You're meeting people, just talking about something, business meetings, or you know, you're meeting with a potential client, fine. If you start signing the contracts, if you start you know, doing some of the items that are outlined in the contract, then that's work, we've crossed the line. So, I mean, if it's, and as IRCC says, and, and the regulations say, if it's international in scope, fine. Um, if we start getting into the nitty gritties of things, um, then we're doing work. So the, the classic example for me is someone who's maybe wanting to start a business um, here in Canada, so open up a branch of their, you know, let's say their, their US um, company. When you're coming in to set that up and meeting with, let's say, us as immigration counsel with, you know, a real estate, someone to try and find, you know, to secure premises for the company to meet with potential investors, that that encompasses the scope of a business visitor. Um, but once that company set up um, and all of that's done and then you're coming in in the capacity of a CEO of that company and then you're starting to work and starting to, you know, um, you know, on the day-to-day -day operation of that company, that's when we've crossed over to the work aspect of things. So that's the, the classic example I, I, I use with my clients is. Um, is this where like training, like, like participating in company training or even conducting company training, does this fit in under business visitors? Yeah, so that's yeah. 187. Okay. Um, so 187 um, defines business visitors. I just pulled it up. So it's for a business visitor to Canada as a foreign national who is described in section two or who seeks to engage in international business activities in Canada without directly entering the Canadian labor market. Right. And then section two says these three types of people are business visitors, people who enter Canada, foreign nationals who enter Canada to purchase Canadian goods or services for use by the foreign business or receive training or familiarization in respect of such goods or services. And then B, I think, is the broad one, the most expansive one, which is foreign nationals receiving or giving training within a Canadian parent or subsidiary of the corporation mm -hmm. that employs them outside Canada, as long as the production of any goods is incidental. Um, and then the third is people representing businesses or governments for the purpose of selling goods for that business or government, as long as they aren't selling to the general public. Um, so, and the other one that people don't seem to um, like, just it's a question that I get a lot, like, I, can I come in and look for a job? You know, I think people think that that is automatically a violation to come in and look for work. So mm -hmm. I do get that question a fair bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where that does get complicated are where interviews might have a hands-on component. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to happen, or where I see it happen, where there are issues is in the trucking industry, where they'll say, okay, well, go drive that truck over there and we'll see like if you can do it. And it starts to get very blurry as to whether they're now working or is this part of an interview or what exactly is it? Mm. Um, the other one that people ask are board of directors. So if you own, um, and this might even warrant its own topic for a couple minutes is we talked about self-employment, but what can you own a company without 
working at the company. Um, oh. the end. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's just on the IRCC website. You're allowed to attend board of directors meetings mm -hmm. is the scope of uh, what 186 allows. But then in practice, um, yeah, Canada regulates just the actual work, not ownership of companies under immigration law. Which is in the other, I mean, another question that people ask is, and Canadian companies will ask is, can I employ someone abroad on a contract basis or do they need a work permit? Um, like, I don't know if you've ever gotten that question because uh, especially in a work from home world, like, you know, Canadian companies will hire people on contract basis from all over the world. The answer is no, that um, immigration law only basically only cares in this context about what people are doing when they're physically in Canada. In Canada, yeah. And there is an interesting labor market issue, I guess, of like, mm. you know, that we don't care. The Canadian immigration law doesn't mind if a Vancouver-based company hires someone in California to work in California for that company doing software development. But as soon as they move to BC, that's where there's big immigration hurdles that arise. Yeah, um, and that's that's what every client is astonished by. So when we answer that question, it's okay. They're like, really? Are you sure? Like, this is what we're doing. And they'll ask for verification over and over again. And we say, yes, it, you're you're okay. But you know, you've identified it perfectly, Stephen, that it's it's it seems a bit counterintuitive to the, you know to why we need work permits and all of that, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the other authorization to works, I mean, like foreign representatives, military personnel, government officers, uh, 186F on-campus employment. So people who are uh, attending school here can work on campus without a work permit. And it's interesting just the legislative history of how that came before off-campus work. And I don't know what the historic rationale for why a student can work full-time on campus. Um, you know, they can work up to 40 hours a week on campus, but as soon as they, depending on where the school is, cross the street, if it's U of T and work at the Starbucks across the street or off-campus, then they're limited to um, 20 hours and then full-time during regularly scheduled uh, like school breaks. Do you know where mm -hmm. that historic divide comes from or what? I don't know, but I would imagine it's because of the degree to which, you know, students will do kind of work under a particular professor and end up getting paid for doing research and that sort of thing. And just not having, not wanting to, um, have to limit that or confine the amount of hours they would have to they would be able to do that work and I imagine you know it's it's important to the research and you know to the development of the faculty to have um, you know good students be able to support the you know the research and you know the faculty development and all that sort of thing yeah and so it's just would have been TAs and that sort of stuff yeah. yeah. Although I think it includes like on their website, on-campus employers includes those businesses who serve the general public as long as the place of business is located on the institution's campus. 
Yeah. yeah. So that Starbucks could be on campus. Or yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Across the street and, and not. So that's. That's I where mean, it gets weird. Yeah. But no, Deanna, what you've said makes the most sense. I mean, you yeah. don't want to limit. Research is an unlimited <laughs> uh, endeavor, so they don't want to limit that. That would make complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. We have our foreign yeah. nationals, uh, the performing artists, the um, <laughs> guest artists. WWE is specifically listed as people who can come in. Amazing. Artist, air yeah. show uh, individuals. Um, I remember there was a big debate over people playing at bars and I don't remember off the top of my head how that resolved. It's not on the uh, IRCC website. Um, oh no, there it is. So people, for example, if a couple, actually we used to get this question a lot was uh, if a couple hires a band to perform at their wedding, uh, there is no employment relationship created even where contracts are signed. However, if a dinner theater hires a foreign singer or dancer to perform five nights a week on a weekly basis, then there is an LMIA that's needed. Contracts for short gigs do not create an employment relationship and therefore they can enter without a work permit. Yeah. This really gets to that like, you know, the lawyerly <laughs> answer of it depends. It depends, um, exactly. Whether they need a work permit or not. Yeah, and what we always tell clients are, and I mean, we've provided as a practice tip in the book is, just to talk about the frequency. So if it's like a one-time, you know, deal, um, that's fine. Even like the example of the, you know, WWE, you know, you're just coming in for that one night, it's fine. But if you're going to be like an ongoing guest, then, you know, or an, un uh, an ongoing performer, then you're going to have to get the work permit. So there's, we, we get those questions a lot too with, you know, different, um, um, different artists that are coming in just for something or even um you know speakers at special events like guest yeah. lectures and stuff yeah. like that so because I would they're say, exempt yeah yeah sorry I would say with all of the work permit exemptions like I think sometimes clients will do these searches and they'll be like oh yippee like I I I'm subject to an exemption amazing <laughs> but it's like they've all got almost more fine print than they do like the exemptions are none of them are broad. They're all extremely narrow exemptions and they have to be looked at with a very uh, fine tooth comb. So like the performing artist one, like, um, and the public speaker one that you mentioned, I think mm -hmm. um, those are really good examples of like where you have to like really <laughs> um, read in and be like, you know, does this actually apply to this particular set of circumstances? Cause it's, um, yeah. Well, well because that's favorite. what the officer will do too, is they're going to exactly. go to the website and just start exactly. reading through it. Yeah. And they'll say, well, how about if I push the events? That's my favorite question is how about if I push the events over like a calendar year? <laughs> would I still be able to use the exemption? And I'm like, again, it's that thing of it depends, right? But I'm like, if you know at this point that you're going to be coming back frequently, then no, it, this doesn't apply to you. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, if it comes up that, as of today's date, you only know that you're coming the one time and then four months from now, another event comes in, then, you know, that's more likely to fall within the exemption. So mm -hmm. I always love when clients like pose the alternatives and you kind of have to play CBSA officer slash lawyer mm -hmm. at the same yeah. time. <laughs> well, that public speaker one. So you've got, you know, a, the event must not last longer than five days. Yeah. So you get into like, is that a firm rule? Is that interpretive? 
seminar is a small class at a university or a short intensive course. Commercial speakers have a vested interest in the event. Typically they rent commercial space. If they're doing this for no more than five days on one trip, they can enter. It also covers situations where there are someone is speaking at multiple groups, as long as the duration of all the speaking events is no more than five days, not counting travel time, not included, um, or is it not included are, and this I think is one that really confuses people. Yeah, best for instructors sure. of a particular sport coming to exactly. weekend seminars. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's, well, what's the difference between a guest inspector or guest instructor and a public speaker, what is a mm-hmm. sport, what is a seminar. Yes. You wouldn't, mm-hmm. uh, it all just, yeah, that person who's just reading through the website, not getting into the fine print, would just read, oh, public speakers, that's me. Yeah, exactly. And, and have and, these incredibly complicated. Yeah, it is. And the, the type of question that we get a lot here on the West Coast is like, well, is is yoga and meditation, is that yep. fitness, you know, um, ah. <laughs> or is that wellness, you know? And so, um, so again, these are, these are not um, perfectly uh, contained boxes by any means. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're very interpretive. Um, this is maybe a good point to just kind of, to give a general explanation as to how these applications are made and what, what, you know, what is the user experience in terms of making such an application and, you know, what kind of transparency do they have? So they call you, they ask for an opinion, you're like, here's my opinion. And then mm-hmm. what is the actual experience for the, for the applicant? <laughs> well, I mean, the actual experience for the applicant is it depends on what, you know, if they're from a, a visa required country or not. So mm-hmm. um, I, I will be honest, when you explain to a client that they're going to have to submit something like this to the visa post and there's going to, you know, they're going to need an approval before they come in and all of that, these types of events um, sometimes don't have enough lead time. So when we explain this process to them, they're kind of like, okay, you know, maybe not this time, we'll set it up for next year. Um, yeah. And then for for visa, um, for non-visa um, exempt people, um, they can just do it at the port of entry. Um, and then, but you're having that CBSA officer. So much of the questions that I'm asking when we're doing the assessment are the exact questions that the examining officer is going to do at the port of entry. And then clients are like, I, I get it all the time. They're like, but do you want to help me? I said, I absolutely want to help you. That's why I'm asking you these questions, because if we don't have answers to them, then, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be, I mean, you're going to lose money on the event. You're going to have lost the travel, um, you know, costs and everything. So, I mean, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. So the, I mean, and, and officers, it also depends, as we all know, it depends on the officer you get. It depends on the port of entry crossing. There's so many, um, you know, there's so many factors, but yeah. for us, for it's sure. And then throw in a pandemic and that's well, amazing. yeah. And yeah. then let's put in a strike now, a potential, a looming strike. And then, yes, that's right. Of course. <laughs> yeah. The port so, of entry strike. That's going to be amazing. So we have lots of factors. The yeah. other thing to, uh, on that note of how you apply for this is whether if you're already in Canada, can you just do these activities without having to get advanced approval? Um, and so where this arises last year, 2019, we uh, submitted a work permit application for a religious leader, which is going to be our next work permit exempt mm-hmm. category, 
And it was actually refused on the basis that they had already started working um, on what the officer called a V1 visa and not a specific worker visa. And ultimately the judicial review was successful and it was successful through settlement. So you sometimes wonder, um, you know, what does the settlement actually stand for any principle or why mm -hmm. exactly did it settle? But I took at least one interpretation of the settlement and certainly my arguments to mean that you don't have to have um, a specific visa to work uh, or you don't have to get, if you are in Canada as a visitor and you get offered a job as a, or a gig as a public speaker, you don't have to exit the country and re-enter and make it clear mm -hmm. that you're working now as a um, public speaker. I shouldn't say working. Well, I guess it is work without a work permit. Yeah. Working yeah. as yeah. a public speaker. So I don't know if that's your opinion as well, that you don't need advanced approval for any of these. And uh, even if you're in Canada, if you get offered a job as a, a rabbi, you could just start working as a rabbi. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I would be in agreement um, with you. And I mean, the, the, the discussion we get all the time, as you've said before, it's you're coming in under, you know, 186 work without a work permit, and then you're doing, let's say, extending your status. And a lot of the times, um, you know, the discussion comes, well, should I change it? And I, you know, there, there was a refusal once where they were here as a, as a, I forget, I believe it was an imam and they were here and then they changed, they wanted to make the change to a work permit for the simple purpose of eventually applying for permanent residency. Mm -hmm. um, and then the application got refused. <laughs> because for the exact same reasons you've identified by basically saying, well, you were here as a visitor and now you want to work, you know, pick which one it is. And it's like, well, actually it's both because both like those documents allow for both. It's just, you know, we have the exemption or you can get the work permit under, uh, you know, the C-50. So it was, um, I, I forget how it ultimately ended because I, I may have transferred the file um, at some point, I don't remember the outcome, but I, I, the frustration you've identified is definitely there because it just, it's like they don't under, sometimes they don't, it's lost in translation or, or in interpreting the regulations. <laughs> mm -hmm. The other part about the, <clears throat> the strategy thing that I think gets confusing when it comes to advising clients. First of all, one, one experience that I've had is that oftentimes when clients come to our office, it's because they've been doing something for a while and all yeah. of a sudden they stop being able to do it. So like they've yeah. been coming in to do public speaking or to come to meetings and all of a sudden they start getting refused or their employees start getting refused or whatever. And then they start saying, can I do this? And how do I do this and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and um, <clears throat> so the, the point that I wanted to make was about when you're like about the use of the temporary foreign worker units. I can't, I don't think they're called that anymore. IMWU or something like that. Isn't that what mm -hmm, they're called mm -hmm. now? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious as to whether or not you recommend that people use the IMWU for opinions about this or whether or not you think people are better off just going directly. And just maybe because I've just gone to it, but just explain what this is about and whether or not you recommend people use this. Yeah. And I'll be a lawyer here and I'll say it depends. Yeah. <laughs> um, sure. And And I mean, it really depends on, you know, who the client is, how much documentation you have, um, you know, how much lead time you have and how nervous the client might be. Because totally. some clients, 
some clients are like, Christina, I, I'm not willing to, to give it a go. Like I'm like, you know, dealing with the border officials causes me severe anxiety. I just, I just want something that says I'm okay. So I know when I get on that plane, I'm not going to have to talk very much. Um, and then other, and then other times it's basically, you know, in my opinion, it's not worth going to the unit because it's pretty, you know, black and white. Um, it, it also depends on how big the project is, right? Because if it's that one, that's a gray area and, you know, there's going to be tons of money involved in a particular project and, you know, so many moving parts, sometimes just having that pre-approval and that opinion in hand, um, you know, gives the client some assurity and it also, you know, for ourselves knows that, okay, someone agrees that they're, they're exempt or, you know, they're eligible for the work permit so we can move forward. So it, it really depends, but some of them you don't want the, the, <laughs> the unit looking at, right. Um, or not, but just because I find sometimes there's a lot of follow-up questions that may lead to misunderstanding. And then when you don't have an, when you already have a negative opinion, in the file, then that signals to the border officer, okay, someone's already looked at this. Um, so, and you're coming you know, anyways. Yeah. And you're coming anyways. Now I've, I've seen the outcome go both ways. I've seen it where they've said, well, the unit has said no, and I'm going to stand by that. And I've seen other times where they're just like, no, I, I think you meet the definition. So let's proceed. So it really, again, it's that depends piece that we always yeah. say. I uh, tend to use the unit where it's important that everyone get the same decision. Um, yeah. And I find them to be really quick and good on group decisions. Generally, I like my, like, and I'm curious maybe to know your thoughts on this as well. Generally, I prefer CBSA to IRCC when it comes to decision-making because there's a face-to-face -face interaction. And yeah. unlike with IRCC where they'll just if they have a question, they legally can just say, well, insufficient evidence. Mm -hmm. um, at CBSA, an officer will always ask the question and mm -hmm. you have, like, I, it, the, there, I, I don't know if, I mean, you're nodding along, Christina, and I, I guess you feel the same, that that ability to have the interview is almost like procedural fairness is at the highest at CBSA, uh, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. So I tend to just prefer that an imwu is emails um and i just prefer face to face uh especially if someone's fluent in english and able to express themselves well uh to certainly an online pdf where there's no interaction before a faceless bureaucrat or just emails mm -hmm. absolutely and i also feel that the border officers especially in like border towns they understand as i say the business right or they understand how businesses work and you know, what is going on. So I find they're, you know, they ask the right types of questions. Um, so that that's generally why I also prefer just sending them directly to the border and have a, an officer make that decision. Um, yeah. yeah. And we touched on it a little bit, but religious work is, you mentioned the C50 exemption code. So people who are religious workers don't need an LMIA. Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of unique in that the IRCC website says if you're a religious worker, you can get a work permit or you don't have to have a work permit. It's kind of up to you. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. I've kind of been surprised that the work permit exemption continues to exist, considering there is a very flexible work permit option. Um, I, I don't know why you're still able to work as a religious worker without a work permit. I'm sure there is a reason. 
I don't know if any of you can think of what it might be, but. Um, no, not, I mean, we just know we advise, I mean, there's pros and cons to either of them. So it's kind of, we leave it to the client to decide. I mean, when you're doing the LMI or when you're doing the um, work permit, obviously there's all the issues related to the employer portal, employer mm -hmm. compliance, that sort of stuff. Um, and then when you're doing the, um, when you're doing the visitor record or the exemption, those factors aren't really considered. So, yeah. I mean, you know, those are Does, different things. Um, or again, I don't know how sorry. it works in Ontario regarding healthcare for people on visitor records. Mm -hmm. Like, are they entitled to whatever the, like we call it MSP here. I don't know. OHIP. Are they entitled to OHIP? I believe they are. Yeah. And as long as it's over the six month period. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So I think that's a distinction in BC. Um, visitors don't, aren't entitled to MSP. So especially in BC, it's like, the advantage of having the work permit is clear. Um, interestingly enough, what's now, I think, possibly unique in BC is if you're a child and you're here on a study permit, you have to pay MSP. But if you're here on a visitor record, you don't. So there's monthly premiums in BC. And I think, I think BC might be unique for its monthly premium system that the, uh, the new Democrat government here recently got rid of, but it continues for international student and international the student is defined as someone with a study permit, um, whereas people on visitor records do not need them. Um, flipping through some of these other specific ones, judges, referees, healthcare students, civil aviation crew, emergency service providers um, is one that comes up somewhat occasionally if you're dealing with a, uh, a community that has had an emergency um, and they need to get people in. And then implied status, which I saw was recently named maintained status, mm -hmm. not uniformly updated on the IRCC website. <laughs> and I think Deanna, you've been to federal court on, am I wrong, right? You had an implied uh. I feel like I've probably been to federal court many times on implied status, but I, I'm not sure I can think of what particular case is, but I just feel like I live in the land of implied status. Yeah. And that is that if you, the, the, well, do you want to say the basic two sentence summary of maintained status as it's now called? Yeah. Just that if you have applied to extend your status prior to the expiration of your current status, you maintain that status until a decision is made on the new application. Yeah. And so you can continue to work. Um, you basically maintain the conditions of your prior permit until the new decision is rendered. Yeah. yeah. And that's, so you, the, that's the key. Yeah. You yeah. can't start your new job if you have yeah. a new job, but you can continue in your old job. Yeah, it just holds, it's like a holding pattern for that old permit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Off-campus work, we touched on a bit. And then there's W, which is the transition to post-graduation status. And there's been a that's few a super weird one. Oh my god, that is a <laughs> super weird one. I feel like that one is a bit of a dog's breakfast, that post-grad work permit. The, there are lots of things yeah. to say there. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on how <laughs> for the federal court, um, especially, and I know your firm's familiar with this from some of the early cases, like the federal court seems to treat postgraduate work permits 
amongst the strictest in how it's interpreted and especially when mm -hmm. it comes to restoration to a post-grad work permit. But in the area that you're talking to with this being complicated, Deanna, is that the when it is that like you can work when you're on a scheduled break full-time in your last semester? It's that. Like it's like that you, you cannot work the moment you graduate until the moment that you apply. Yeah. Nobody understands that. So mm -hmm. people that are in jobs that they actually are supposed to stop working until they've applied for their post-grad work permit, but they can't apply for their post-grad work permit until they get their transcript. So the delay mm -hmm. of the school in issuing their permit render, and then people don't know that and then they're terrified to disclose this period of unauthorized yeah. work and they're worried about the consequences of that and then they're worried that they've misrepresented themselves because they didn't know that it anyway so it's just all that but also it's like the timing of how long you have to apply for your post-grad work permit because again this is one of those that might seem to be straightforward but sometimes people like, let's say, for example, you've switched schools and you've obtained, you know, you've done some courses here and you've done some courses there. And then, you know, I've had a number of people who've actually like sometimes people, they switch schools. And this happened a lot around the pandemic where like schools shut down. And then I've yeah. had people go back to previous schools and realize they actually had enough credits to actually get a lesser diploma than the one mm -hmm. that they were working toward. But mm -hmm. then does that prevent them from actually applying for the post-grad work permit off of that prior diploma because too much time has gone by? Like there's just, again, it's just, these ones are very, very ambiguous when you get into sort of more non-straightforward cases. And because yeah. it's all in policy, it just gets super confusing and overwhelming for people to try and figure out how well, to navigate. I know. And I feel for the, the foreign students because I mean, they're starting... <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about myself at 17 years old, right? Oh my I mean, not only are you starting at like education, you're, you're moving to a different country. You basically have to know exactly what you want to do and be on the right track and just commit to that from the moment you enter Canada um, and hope everything goes well and you don't totally. struggle and you don't have anything go on because that's really the only way the post-grad is going to work for you. Or for sure. if, you know, you, you invest additional money and continuing your education and, you know, your parents probably spent all their money just to send sure. you to, to do this, you know, two year college diploma. So, I mean, it's, there's a it's lot of pressure, pressure on these young people. Yeah. 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 Um, there are a couple of other things, like let's say you've done a one year degree and then you get your one year post-grad permit and then you go back to school and you do do a two year degree, but you've burned your one year. Exactly. Post-grad. Why can't they just give you the second, like the <laughs> two balance of the two years? Like, I just don't understand why that I is. I just don't understand the policy. It's like you get one for lifetime. It doesn't matter that you now... You know, I ended yeah. like I could imagine saying a three year max, like that's it. Yeah. That's all you can ever get. But to say like you, you know, because a lot of people, they don't know, they get their one year diploma, they get their one year thing, they earn enough money that they go back to school and to say now yeah. your your shot is done. I just don't understand. For me, it's I the full time agree. status requirement. That one. I just go crazy. So yeah. if you're in your mm -hmm. final year and you want to go and you have one, you know, you're in your last year and you can choose. I want my winter semester to be part-time or my spring semester. Maybe I want to ski a lot in the winter and yeah. not allowed. 
Um, I also don't understand you get why sick, like, if they or get rid you of that, have you an think... injury or like, and I, I understand that there are leave of absence provisions, but they're not as easy to navigate no. as no. it might no. seem. They're really not. And the not. student really has to know what to ask for, what to do, what to, I, I mean, we've, we've dealt with so many of those where I was just like, we can't do anything for you. And then we'll yeah. apply, let's maybe even say like a TRP, right. With a work permit. And you try to explain this to someone and hope they understand, but like, Good luck. Yeah. Nine months, luck. 12 months later, yeah. you get a decision on that application. Exactly. Like, one of those really things like... too that I would automate. Like, I don't understand why it can't just be the school hits on like, their portal. This guy graduated. This uh, person graduated. Here's Automatic your permit. three-year work permit. Like it's, That's it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and even to... just how like how people really are still being recruited to schools without understanding that the, this mm-hmm. is not a post-grad eligible school. Mm-hmm. There's one more that I got that um, that was another frustration for me about this, about, um, oh, um, co-op terms. I've found that a lot of schools, they all say like your max, like you have to, in order to maintain full-time status, you have to have eight, 80 credits per term. Mm-hmm. I'm just making up a number. But co-op terms are considered 20 credits, but they're obviously still considered full-time status. But unless you put in document, and now I got this because somebody came to me after a refusal. Now I put in documentation from the school that says, even though your co-op term is only 20 credits, here's the documentation from the school that says you're still considered full-time. Because I had IRCC refuse a post-grad work permit for somebody on the basis that it was only 20 credits during that term. They were working like crazy. But again, a student doesn't know to put in the whole school's policy saying a co-op term is full-time. So they lost status and they were out of work for like six months while waiting for a restoration. It's just like, it's really stressful. It's it's an exceptional burden to put on students. Like there's already so much pressure trying to find. And then that's not like you know, going back to your point before Deanna, just talking about, you know, that period of time from when you're finished your schooling and then when your employer wants to hire you. I mean, we're pushing to say we need a younger workforce. We need to recruit out of university, out of colleges. That just makes an employer completely turned off by the whole concept of, you know, recruiting out of college and university. So it's, it, it just, it drives me like, I just feel for these students. And then there's the exceptional pressure of making sure you have a job lined up right after graduation, because that's Never your been. shot to get PR. So, <laughs> I mean, I feel for, I, I I mean, I feel for them. I really do. That's yeah. going to be a, a whole episode on. Yeah. yeah. The other one is the trimester system. If you like, that's probably where I see the most confusion at CBSA and people coming into the office because they were told you weren't always a full-time student. And you know what I mean by the tri- these schools that operate on like a three trimester system. And the first thing that I always think when I look at their transcripts is, oh, it's a three trimester system. I'm going to have to go look up how this works again. <laughs> and I think that's what causes confusion at uh, CBSA as well. Yeah. Yeah. I um, think you're Deanna, right. I know you have to go in four minutes. I do. Um, we've kind of hit everything except. I don't know anything about strategy. global skill strategy. So you're Basically, just as well Basically, the way I describe me. it is IRCC said, you know what? You want to work in Canada in a skilled position for one month? Go for it. That's basically yeah. like the one, although I don't know if it's all skilled. I think it's just knock uh, zero. And yeah, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But isn't there still that issue of like, and again, I only hear about other people complaining about this because I don't do this stuff, but isn't there still the issue of not knowing whether they've let you in under the global still strategy? And if so, when, and I'm like, yeah. And so like for people to track, like, 
you know, what actually happened and for employers to ensure that their workers were actually given this exemption to make sure they're being compliant, like that it's like, you know, there's like all sorts of, um, you know, they're not actually issued something that says, no, yes, you have to, but, uh, you have to like, you have to beg in some instances that, that, a that a visitor record gets issued because they don't have to. Right. So it's like, when we give packages, it's written all over the package. We have prep calls with the applicant and say, please ask, don't leave. And I remember I had a call once on a Sunday evening and the client's like, the officer's not giving it to me. And I was like, they're not allowing you entry. He's like, no, he's not giving me that document that you want. And you told me not to leave if I don't give you the document. So I was like, okay. So we had to have a discussion with the officer, but yeah, it's definitely, that's the frustration because you don't know um, as counsel, we basically say you have to track these things for compliance. You have to track them, but then, you know, they're not always getting it. So I could see the officer, like from the CBSA officer's position, it's probably a pain and a delay to print a permit. Yeah. And they're probably saying, well, normally we grant people six months to be a visitor. We're doing that here. You're only coming for one month. Why do you need a piece of paper? Exactly. Well, that's that's what employers have all been told. Well, there should be something then that's like a work permit exemption. Like, I I think that that's uh, maybe just an overall comment that for people to have like something to hold on to that says, this is the exemption that has been granted to you. Like, you know, I know that if I were doing this, maybe I'm more uptight than the average person, but I would like to have something in my hand that said, this is a document that permits me to do the thing that I'm doing. So absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Don't think that's I mean, it's a great program and it, and it deals with all the situations where you don't fit into the exemptions that we just talked about. And it allows workers to come in for the temporary project in 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 theory and practice in that regard it's fantastic it's just the frustration is that document and i think yeah. that's something they're going to have to you know eventually implement yeah yeah well cool um uh, and just to correct my okay sorry go ahead <laughs> no no go what were you going to correct to correct myself um when i had said previously about uh, you had indicated about the um Religious workers, um, they're not actually entitled because there are certain ones that allow you to be entitled to OHIP and they're not one of them. So um, the same considerations happen here in Ontario, I suppose, with the OHIP coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, I think we've covered it all off. Everything. Um, Deanna wants documents to carry on her at all times. Yeah, please. <laughs> and on that uh, that note, um, yeah, maybe we'll do round two for uh, post grad work permits and all the issues there. Um, yeah, that's yeah. definitely a hot topic. Thanks for coming on, Christina. I don't know if you have material for a future book now or uh, whenever you next. I'm, I'm I'm still I'm still recovering from the first. <laughs> no first doubt. Round. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we should put in a plug on our when we post this episode with uh, a link to where we can find Christina's book. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Thank you. All right.